I want to look at one phrase, five simple words uh, that appear at the end of Parak Dalit of Breshit, uh, that are words that are very hard to decipher. And the best evidence of that is the fact that the Rishonim are all over the place on them. Um, there's a wide range of approaches to understanding these words. So we're going to take a very quick survey, and then I'm going to propose uh, a way to understand them. Parakdal, just to give background, because the background is critical for this, um, is it really a parsha by itself. So even though it's the Christian division, it actually sort of works in this case. And it really is the story of Cain and Hevel all the way through the replacement. Uh, it sounds like a strange way to put it, but as you could see, Pasuk Aleph all the way through uh, Pasuk uh, Ted Zion, or actually further and to Pasuk Yonchet, is the story of Cain, Hevel, Cain, is uh, is displeased with the fact that Hashem doesn't favor his offering, whatever that may mean. And he gets angry. Hashem gives him the Musar. Kayan finds some excuse or doesn't know what he's doing. A lot of Parshan Utanet ends up killing Hevel. God says famously, a, a Hevel Achicha, where's Hevel? And his answer famously, famously is Hashemer Achianochi, which of course the answer is yes. And uh, and then God chastises him and throws him out of Aden, and he has to wander, uh, and he's Navanad, which is odd because the first thing he does is settle down and build a city. But that again, every, every corner in Parshat Brashit is another Shi'ur by itself that leads to another Shi'ur. Uh, but when you look at what happens here, Cain ultimately gives birth to, meaning through several generations, to a fellow named Lemech. And Lemech has two wives. It's the first time that we hear about that. And um, and he has children who seem to be sort of the founding captains of certain industries, including forging and music and uh, perhaps of proper shepherding. And then there's this strange interaction between Lemech and his wives. And again, this is all just background. And then we go to Pasuk Hafei, and it's like we switch back to Adam, which is odd because, but we figure by now Adam is long dead. Maybe he is, but we then flash back and say, Adam So Adam is another kid, and that kid they call Shait. Why? Shait is the replacement. God has given me or placed for me another child in place of Hevel because Cain killed Hevel. So that seems to be the simple solution. You have two kids, one kid kills the other, have another kid so that you make up for the lost kid. It's beautiful. Now, and now Shait has a son. And by Shmo Enosh. Interesting because Enosh actually means mortal or weak. And the plural of Enosh, of course, is Anashim. But here's the phrase that I want to look at. And this is how the the parak ends, and this is how the parsha ends. I'll explain what I mean by by parsha. Azuchal likro b'shem Adonai. I'm not going to translate it because that's that's the rub. What does this phrase mean? Um, does it mean at that point it began? At the at that point it was it was stopped. At that point it was desecrated. Unclear because the key word in this, of course, is huchal. But the word az is also problematic here. What is what's happening now? What's spurring something to happen now? Um, but this is, um, 
The reason I mentioned this is the end of a parsha is because the very next pasuk, which is beginning of Parakeh, is Zeh Sefer Toldot Adam, and it begins the famous first formal begat list that we have, which is Adam, Sheit, Enosh, etc., etc., leading us all the way to Noach, bridging the gap from Adam, bridging the, the generations from Adam to Noach, and then leading to the Noach story. Um, so this really is the end of a story. And so what we are looking at is an, an entire story by itself, which is really made up of several spokes. There's the Cain and Hevel interaction. There's the Cain and God interaction, which is in two parts, one before he kills Hevel and one after he kills Hevel. Then there's the Cain generational piece where he's off on his own having kids and we see what happens to his generations. We then take a moment to look at several generations down the line, Lemech and how he interacts with his family. And again, there's no clue as to why these things are significant or why they're uh, why they're included, and all sorts of other facts are not included, including who somebody else married, whose other kids they had, and uh, and then we suddenly shift back to Adam, say, oh yeah, by the way, Hevel is dead, so Adam has another kid to make up for that, and that's Sheit. Sheit has a kid named Enosh, and Azuchali Kovishem Adonai. Period. Finished. End of report. And now we're going to give you the begats. So this phrase is not only um, an enigmatic and mysterious phrase as to what it means, but it also signals the end of a period, the end of a story, the end of a literary unit, which raises its significance even more. Okay, so let's take a look and see what the history of Parshanut on this is. Uh, if, if you got the, the handout, you saw there's a lot of pages here. We're not going to go through everything in detail, but we're going to start as early as we can. The first question is, what does Likro B'Shem Hashem mean? So what would you, prima facie, without any evidence, what would you think Likro B'Shem Hashem means? How would you translate that phrase, Likro B'Shem Hashem? To call in the name of God. Okay, good. What does that mean, to call in the name of God? Well, the thing is, you would think it's you're not calling God directly. You're calling something else in the name of God. Okay, so to call something else in the name of God. All right. And whose approach is that? That's the Rambam's approach. All right. We're going to see that. However, the problem is that that's not what it means anywhere else in Tanakh. So if you take a look at these, what, 10, 9 or 8 or 8 examples here, um, many of them taken from Sefer Breshit, and this is not by any means exhaustive, but it is a a very good sampling, meaning there aren't really exceptions to this. What does Likro B'Shem Hashem mean? So the first example, of course, is Avraham, or Avram at the time. Although this is when Avram comes back from uh, from Mitzrayim, uh, this is on his way, on his way down to the land. When he moves from Shechem southward, he sets up his Mizbeach between Beit El and Ha'ai, now, I don't think we're going to assume at any point that Avram is now starting to call other things God. And Vayikra B'Shem Hashem, of course, is something that repeats several times in the Avram narrative. So, for instance, when he does return from Mitzrayim in Source 3, and when he moves to uh, back to Beersheba from Grar, right? And, and in some cases, they're associated with building a Mizbeach. And it seems to be that this Hashem seems to be calling out in God's name, which is broadly interpreted in one of two ways. Either announcing things about God, teaching people about God, or else praying to God. 
Now, at this point, we don't really know what it is that Avram is doing. Although, as you see in these sources, and the, the, the source five is Yitzchak doing the same thing, um, is unclear because there doesn't seem to be a motivation for prayer. There's not like a thing that happened that he's praying for. And therefore, it would seem like Hashem is to somehow publicize God. But then you get to its usage later in Tanakh. And for instance, in the famous case of Eliyahu, his big moment on Hara Carmel, what is Eliyahu's deal with the Nevi'ah Baal? I'm going to set up his Be'ah, you'll set up his Be'ah. I'll put a par, you'll put a par. We won't put any fire. Ukratem, ukratem b'shem Eloheichem, you will call out the name of your gods. Ba'ani'akram b'shem Adonai, and I'll call out in God's name. Va'ya'elim asheyaneh ba'eshu Elohim. And whichever God answers with a fire, that's the real God. The famous God competition on Ara Carmel. But notice here, ani'akram b'shem Hashem is clearly to pray. Because the response is la'anot. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a prayer that we recognize. But it's calling out, invoking, asking God to do something. And you see the same thing in Malachim Bet, when Naaman comes to Eliyahu's disciple, Elisha. And Naaman, who is the famous Syrian general who has Tzarat, comes to be cured by Elisha, based on the advice of the girl from Eretz Yisrael. And he gets very angry because he had an expectation. What was his expectation? Right? That he would come out to me. That's his expectation is, I'll be there on my horse and the Navi will come out to me. He'll come out and say some God stuff. He'll put his hands over me and he'll magically cure me. Now that's Naaman's relatively unsophisticated and having very kind to him approach to theology, which he then gets corrected a little bit later on. But the Karab Hashem Hashem means that this Navi will call out and pray to God. Now, there is uh, support for the other approach, which is not necessarily meaning prayer, but to announcing God. All right? And that is a very famous Nebuah of Tzfanya. It's probably the most famous Pasuk in Tzfanya because most people don't know Tzfanya. Ki azefoch elamim safa vura liko chulam b'shem Adonai u'lo'ovdo shechem echad. This is a one of the many versions of a messianic uh, imagery, uh, an end of days scenario, what we call an eschatology, that God says, I am going to have all of the nations turn to a clear statement, a clear expression, to all call out in the name of Hashem, to worship Him as one unit. And so, either means to pray to God or to announce God, right? And uh, and here we have an example that isn't prayer, at least not in the sense of beseeching, because a pasuk that shows up twice in Tehillim, which seems like it is praying of thanksgiving. So all of these examples of the B'Shem Hashem all seem to point to either announcing something about God or else calling out to God, either in prayer or in thanksgiving. So we roll back to our pasuk, we got to ask, what is it that the pasuk is telling us happened, Az, meaning suddenly something happened, that Az huchal likro b'shem Adonai. So, and, and we don't know. And we don't know. And as and because of that, this very quick tour through um, about uh, close to 2,000 years of Parshanut will be eye-opening in its, in its breadth because it's such a confusing phrase. 
So you start, we take a look at the Septuagint, even though it's not the earliest source that we have, but we're going to start with it. You can see in the highlighted piece what it, what is being saying. Hutos, um, uh, El Pisen, which means, and then he hoped to call out in God's name. He being Shait, who gave birth to Enosh, hoped to call out in God's name. Which means that the birth of Enosh suddenly brought for Shait a sense of something good that would be an opportunity. And you, and you see this substantiated with a period piece, which is the Book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees, which is one of the more famous books of the Apocrypha, Sefer Yovlin, um, in it, which this is not the original, we don't have the original of Yovlin, but the best copy of Yovlin we have actually is written in Gez, and, and in the Ethiopian uh, language, but this is the common translation that we use. Uh, Sefer Yovlin very quickly is a second or first century BCE uh, work which is purported to be the words of a malach given to Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai, in which he retells all the history of mankind from the beginning all the way to that point in Har Sinai, and it's all a chronography. That's why it's called Sefer Yovlin. It's all put into the context of, in the fourth Yovel, in the third Shemitah, which he calls Shavua, in the fourth year, in the third month on this day, right, all the stuff happens. Sefer Yovlin is a, is a fascinating read by itself. For our purposes right here in the fourth parak. So the fifth Yovel of history, which means this is now between the year 200 and 250, it's the Shavua Hamishi, which means it's somewhere between the year 228 and 235 of history. This, of course, is the big problem with where does anybody come from? And the answer is that we start with incest, which is people have a boy, people have a girl, and the boy and girl get together and have kids, and ultimately somehow we get beyond that. Right? So this is just the Midrashic fill-in. Who's the wife, and when was Enosh born? Which seems to be a very positive thing. <coughs> and and Yovlim is interpreting as huchal, meaning he was the first one to call out in God's name. Makes him sound like a good guy. If you look in Josephus in the Antiquities, in the first book of the Antiquities, he has a very similar flavor, which means at the earliest stratum of interpretation in the 3rd century and 2nd century and 1st century B.C. and the 1st century C.E., the approach to this pasuk was something positive. That now with the birth of Enosh, there's a new awareness of God, there's a new relationship with God, people are, are calling to God, praying to God. All right. We roll a few hundred years later to Breshit Rabbah, which is a fourth century Midrash, and this gives us a very different take, much closer to what Jason said. All right, and um um we'll just point very quickly to Azuchal. Amar Rabbi Simon Bishloshama Komot, take a look at the Midrash when you have a chance. Amar Rabbi Simon Bishloshama Komot Nemar Belashon Azelashon Mered. The verb Huchal or Lahachil. He said, always refers to rebellion. Suddenly it's all changing. And it starts with Azuchali Krobashem Adonai, and then Vahike Chel Hadam, which is the end of our parsha, which is the Bnei Ha'elohim Benot Adam, which we talked about last year, and Hui Echil which is the Nimrod story. So this verb, Hechel, and by the way, interesting that they don't quote the Pasuk, that 
Vayachel Noach, which is after the flood, the first thing Noach does is plant the Karam, and that's his downfall, and it uses also the same word, Vayachel. So we bring a proof against it, right? So the point is that they're reading this um, uh, in a way that is that sees Hazuchal as Mered, which means somehow there's a rebellion involved with this, which we're going to see explicated more clearly, exactly the way that uh, that Jason said uh, in the Rambam, um, and uh, and you see here of Achab. This is being read as some sort of an invocation of Avodah Zarah. So I'm going to quick, skip quickly to the Rambam here. The Rambam in the beginning, and this is unusual because this is not in the Moran Abuchim, this is in the Mishnah Torah. In the Mishnah Torah, the first chapter of Hilchot Avodah Zarah is a history of Avodah Zarah. The Rambam explains how did Avodah happen? Because he's starting with the premise that Adam Harishon was fully cognizant of the God who created him. He talked to him, he interacted with him. So how do we end up with paganism that Abraham has to correct or rebel against or whatever? And so he gives the, the, the description and he says it happened Bimei Enosh. And very quickly, what does the Rambam say? He says that people came up with the following thinking. God created all of these wondrous things that it is an honor to God for us to adore and and revere those things he created. God created the sun and the moon and the constellations, so those are also worthy of our reverence. And then, of course, that led to seeing them as gods by themselves, and that, that's how it's ended. Notice how he starts, Bimei Enosh ta'u adam ta'u So it was in the days of Enosh that this terrible mistake happened, and so the Rambam is reading exactly as Jason did, which is, at that point, they started calling other things by God's name. Now, of course, the problem with that is the Kro Hashem never means that anywhere else. So it, it doesn't mean it's impossible, but it's not as if the Kro Hashem is also a unique phrase. As we saw above, in a very small sampling of the many times that calling out in God's name appears, in Tanakh, it's always Hashem, and it's not associating God with other things, and it's always a positive thing. It might be out of need, it might be out of gratitude, it might be out of uh, heralding or making an announcement, but it's not about Avodah Zarah, so it's difficult. So we've got to see, where does the Rambam come with this, uh, come to this? So I'm jumping back to source 13, very, very quickly, Rafsad Yagaon was a trailblazer in so many ways. Rafsad Yagaon, who um, lived 842 to 892, I think, ninth century, he was uh, actually Egyptian, and then he ended up as the uh, Gaon of the Shiva in Pubadita. It wasn't in Pubadita anymore, it was in Baghdad, but he was, um, he was a trailblazer in so many ways, including for our purposes as a parchan. Till Rav Sadegon, there had been nobody who had addressed the issue of parshanut in a systematic, comprehensive way. Midrashim are not parshanut. There are midrashim parshaniim, meaning where they look and they say, what does this mean? But the purpose of midrash was not parshanut. And chachamim, chazal, were not parshanim. They were darshanim. Their approach to the text was what lesson can I gain from this text? Not what does the text mean? 
Because what the text means, we all know, and now let's see what we can derive from it, what, can, what lessons we can get from it. The first person to address the text of Tanakh and say, now I've got to explain what this means, Rav Yagon. And in Rav Yagon's uh, tafsir, in his, uh, which he wrote in Judeo-Arabic, he writes as follows, this is a translation, Right away he tells us what the problem is. This phrase can be interpreted four different ways. He's not saying it means four different things. It means it could be interpreted one of four different ways. He says, number one is, He says, this is the closest meaning to what it means elsewhere in Tanakh. And he has a different take. He says, using God's name in a name, meaning to have a name that includes God's name. So, Abe, your name is Avram, Avram Yitzchak. I'm Yitzchak Dov. Neither of us have God's name in our name. Dovi, what's your full name? Dov. Dov. I missed the first part. You... Sadok. Sadok Dov. Okay. And Zevi, what about you? Binyamin Zev. Okay, we're still not. Jason, how about you? I'm Yosef. You're Yosef. Okay, Sharon, how about you? Chana Sharon. Okay, so none of us here have theophoric names. But you notice what happens is if you, if in this generation, and I highlighted it on page one, Suddenly, there are names that are showing up that are called what we call theophoric names, in which God's name is included, like Mishael and Mahalalel. Suddenly, God's name is being included in names. So he says that's the simplest explanation of um, of uh, of what that means. Now, number two, meaning they started having public prayer. Right, Rasul Atzmam Mekomot Mizgad Veknesiyot. Should have said B'shem El. What? Should have said B'shem El, not B'shem Hashem. Oh, very good, very good. So that's why he's not very happy with Olaf, and I'm not sure why he says who Karov Beato Lashanakatu, because really Bet should be Lashanakatu, right? Bet, the second one should be closest to what we saw as examples is to call out to God. He says. That, you know, he's not ready to, to, to play with the idea that nobody called out to God. He said, now they started making it a public thing. You call it to God. Number three, meaning the Rambam's take, right? That they started calling other things God. And then, and he's saying that doesn't mean to begin, but rather to desecrate. And so calling out to God became desecrated, and people started demeaning things like that. Now, by the way, Bet and Dalit sound like they're being taken from his own life. The idea of public prayer, and the idea of public prayer being something that's demeaned, famous, the Takana of the Rambam, where he, where he made a Takana, not to Chazar Hashatz, because, you all know this, because the Jews weren't talking to Chazar Hashatz, and so they would, so he canceled it because of the Chilu Hashem involved, Seems to be evoked here. Um, but again, it's with Parash in a lot of different ways. Rashi um, uh, mixes the two. As you take a look in source 16, 15, sorry, Rashi mixes the two. He says they're calling people by God's name, and the idea is that's Abu Dazara. The Rashbam, of course, taking a straight shot, 
right? And this is the Rosh Bam that's kind of the reworked Rosh Bam because remember we lost the Rosh Bam on the first 14 Turkim of, uh, of, uh, Breshit. This is, uh, Hillel Levetsky's work that I think he did as his doctorate to, to reconstruct the Rosh Bam based on how he's quoted in other Rishonim. But now why? Why are they praying? In other words, he's taking the straight meaning of the Hashem. Because suddenly bad things were happening. Right? Notice he addresses Rashi without saying so. Says grandfather, very nice, but I disagree. He disagrees with the Rambam. And he says, Likro B'Shem Hashem always means Hashem. It doesn't mean Avodah Very straight. Ibn Ezra, by the way, points out that Huchal means Tchilat, to begin. And not that it was desecrated. And you see a range of approaches through the Rishonim here. Um, an interesting thing, in, Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu, in the famous parish of Rabbi Hasid, he takes the same approach as one of the approaches of Sadi Gaon, is the idea of putting Hashem's name or El, as Abe pointed out, it's a little chaser, um, but, uh, but putting them into God's name. But now watch what happens. Chashivutoshel Sheit. He says, what, what, what was so great about Sheit? Magidlona Shiloratzaldi Kroshem, Kamoshasuacherim, Beshem Hashem, Shemam Mukhli Alan Tushael. If you look at the paragraph, you'll see that when Cain has his descendants, they have these theophoric names with L in them. Shate didn't want to do that. Rather, what did he call his kid? Enosh, which means mortal. And so Azu Hashem, he interprets as he then stopped calling Bashem Hashem his child. He wanted to stop that practice. And then Huchal then becomes meaning means he ended it. The tour, by the way, just a quick plug. The tour is very well known in his commentary, uh, besides the tour, of course, in the commentary on Chumash, famous that Balaturim, and Balaturim that we're all familiar with, which is that very small, all of it in acronyms, uh, piece that people like to pull out, which is Gematria, and Sofe Milim, and, and Rashi Tevot, and all sorts of other interesting games. That's the, the tour HaKatsar. The tour HaRoch is the, the longer commentary is a real masterpiece. It's overlooked. It's a real masterpiece. And here he quotes several of the different approaches that we've seen. You get to this point in the Rishonim, you're starting to see, to see more summaries because all these different opinions have been out there. The Sforno has an interesting take where, again, he's melding them together, but, but, he's, uh, but he's trying to have several of the approaches work. He says, then some people calling call started calling out to Shem Hashem because... There were all sorts of bad things going on. In other words, he adopts the Rambam's take, but not the Rambam's perush. Then at this point, Avodazara was starting, and in order to offset and to challenge the Avdei Avodazara, people started publicizing God's name. In other words, this is a foreshadowing to, of Avraham. So again, we're, we're, we have lots of places in Shadal and Rav David Tzvi Hoffman here. Who yes. summarize, one second, who summarize yeah. some of these opinions and then give their own approach. But yeah, go ahead, Jason. Where does that midrash come in when they invented the hoe that all of a sudden the farmers started feeling like we did this, it wasn't God, and that led to the Azuchal? Um, I don't know where that midrash is. I haven't heard that. But what you're, what you're mentioning actually is Sefer Yovlim, uh, Perak Yodalid. 
which describes Avraham as creating the seed plow. Oh, I thought it was way before, like the time of Lamech, when they, that, I forget who, or Noah, before Noah, that that was the first sign of, of moving away from God. See if you can find it. I'd be interested to see it. Right. By the way, if you ask me, is there a Midrash that says, before you finish the sentence, I'll say yes. (laughs) The chances are pretty good there is, especially if you've heard it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So I'd like to kind of put this all into, um, a framework into a perspective where what we've seen is first of all the word huchal according to Ibn Ezra simple shot means began that's the way almost everybody reads it although what is it they began doing do they begin calling out in God's name to publicize God did they begin praying to God because suddenly there was a need did they begin publicly um, talking about God because there was a challenge of Abu Dazarat. Did they begin calling other things God? And then there's Huchal Nashon Chilul, and Huchal maybe even being stopping. So, a wide range of things. I'd like to suggest that I'll look at the larger context of what's going on, because the phrase Az Huchal means something's going on, and then something changed. May give us a clue as to what's going on. We're going to start from and I'm just going to scope this very quickly from the beginning of what we commonly call the second story of creation, which is Perak Bet Pasuk Dalad. We all know that there are, I'm just paraphrasing the Rav and Roman Man of Faith, we all know that there's two stories of creation. There's the first Perak and Vaihulu, and then there's the second Perak, Elo Tobot Shman Baram, which really ends at the end of our Perak, that story. Uh, and then Sefer Toldot Adam is the new piece. In this Elo Toldot in this piece, you will notice what's described. It's a world in which, um, in which Hashem is present, manifest, imminent among people. People are ashamed to be in front of God when they realize they're naked. People hear God walking around the garden. I'm not concerned now with the theological implications of it. I'm just, I'm looking at it from a literary perspective. That's what's being described here. And you'll notice that every time that God speaks, that, that there's, that God speaks and that people speak, there's always an interaction between God and man. And God speaks to man. God says, you can eat from this tree. You can't eat from that, that tree. Right. And then what happens here? There's an interaction between Nachash and and Chava, turn the woman who ends up being Chava, and then, but then God speaks with them. And now, if in God comes and He speaks to Adam, and it's everything is a direct relationship about God. It's either in direct relationship with God, or else it's the Nachash and Chava talking about God. God is very present in people's lives. Here's what's interesting that changes. In our parak, suddenly you find something new happen. Cain also interacts with God. And Cain, um, and even though he sins, his direct re- relationship is with God. It is, um, so is my sin too great for you to bear? I brought you a korban. The korban wasn't accepted. It's all about his relationship with God. And God is very present with Cain. Now, not, watch what happens. 
God says something to Cain, which shifts everything, which he says as follows. In the Pasuk Terbav, which means, this is the sign on, on, on Cain, anybody who kills Cain, that Cain will be avenged in the passive seven times over. Suddenly, there's a passivity that sets in. And suddenly, God is setting things in motion without <clears throat> being present. And that suddenly finds a big expression with Lamech. Lamech talked to his wives, and God's not part of the discussion. For the first time, there's a conversation where God's not there. God's not the focus of the discussion, and God's not part of the dialogue. Lamech simply evidently threatens his wives with violence, perhaps, if they don't re- agree to have children. Unclear why. And he uses the same passive. I'd like to suggest that that's what's happening here. Is that the phrase that we end with is which is in the passive. By the way, that word is a hapax legomenon. It shows up nowhere else in Tanakh. But not because what's really changed here is suddenly God's presence is no longer imminent. So what happens as a result? Result one, people start calling their kids with God's name. They add God's name into it because they want God to be present, but God's not present. Second of all, people start talking about God. When do you need to start talking about God? When God is not pshita, when God is not the assumed reality. You need to start preaching about God and talking about God when God can't be assumed to be there. So Hashem is the result of a distancing from God. It may be a necessary distancing. And as a result of that, all of these things are possible. It's possible at that point people start getting confused about God and start seeing great stars and calling them to God. It's possible at that point people have to start countering wrong opinions by teaching about God. They want to maybe name their kids after God to keep God's presence in their lives. All of these different interpretations all start from that distancing from God, which happens in the time of Enosh, which is a necessary step for man. But of course, man ends up using it in a very bad way, which is, of course, what leads to the downfall and ultimately to the Mabul. So what we did is we took a, a very quick survey of the history of Parshanut, of this pasuk, of this phrase, and saw that it goes in a lot of different directions. And what my suggestion is, is by looking at the larger context of the relationship between God and man in this, in this, these prakim, we see that the use of the passive of Avu Azuchal allows for all of these different pieces. Not like Rav Sadia says, mit paresh kama, but meaning it could be read different ways, but I think it necessarily is read all those different ways. And every one of these approaches really has a hold in the text.